What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, what's going on, my friends? In case you haven't heard... Blue Wire Studios just dropped their first original podcast, Golden Goal. The show gives you 10-minute episodes all about soccer legends and the moments that made them legends. So whether you're just learning about soccer for the first time or you're a diehard fan, this podcast is a great listen for everyone. I can't recommend this enough. The final two episodes are live right now or binge the entire season to learn about your favorite soccer stars. So check out Blue Wire's Golden Goal, available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Now hit my music. It's Chrysomania, brother. That's a great question. Look at you, man. Oh, Those are powerful questions. <laughs> Woo! This is the Chris Van Vliet Show. Chris Van Vliet Show. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Van What is going on? And welcome back to another audio adventure on the Chris Van Vliet Show. If you haven't subscribed yet, please take a second to do that right now. This episode is brought to you by Bet Online. And I've been trying to do this interview for the last year, been trying to make this happen with Stu Bennett. Ryback is really good friends with Stu, so. After the last time I saw Ryback in Las Vegas in December, he said that he'd put us in touch. Then Stu said, you know, let's wait till my movie, I Am Vengeance Retaliation, comes out in the summer and we'll do it then. So then when I ran into him at an NWA taping in Atlanta in January, I was like, hey, Stu, just just making sure we're good for this interview. And fast forward now to July. And here we are. It is well worth the wait for more than an hour of awesomeness. Oh, yeah. And you are awesome, by the way. Thanks for being the best part of the show every single week. And you know what? If this is your first time listening, thank you for being here. And thank you to D. Bogan for this review. I hope I'm saying that right. I mean, it looks like Hogan, but with a B. So Bogan could be Bogan, but I'm going to go with Bogan. It's D. Bogan, brother. It's titled, My First Review I've Ever Written. I've been listening to this podcast for the last six months. Needless to say, I'm caught up on all the episodes and went back to listen to certain ones again. Wow. It's awesome to have a host that will let their guests have the time to talk and not talk over them while they're telling their story. Keep it up, CVV. Well, hey, I appreciate that. And I'm going to keep reading one review on every single episode of the show, so keep them coming in. And D. Bogan, or D. Bogan, D. Bogan, brother, uh, we've got a lot more interviews for you to binge coming up in the next week or so. I just wrapped up an interview with Muhammad Hassan, which was just fascinating. So that'll be coming out soon. I also have interviews lined up with Daniel Pewter. That's going to be a good one. And also EY, Eric Young, and a few others are in the works. We're just trying to, you know, put them on the schedule. So there's lots coming up, and that all brings us to this one with Stu Bennett, a.k.a. Wade Barrett. And his new movie, I Am Vengeance Retaliation, is available right now on video on demand. 
He talks about making that transition from WWE into the world of acting. This is his fifth movie, by the way, and he's just, he's just crushing it. We also talk about his role as the color commentator for NWA, how that job came together when Jim Cornette left, and what's next for NWA with the pandemic. You know, WWE, AEW, Impact Wrestling, they've all found a way to make these shows happen. NWA hasn't had a show since COVID came around, so... We get into that. Uh, he talks about exactly why he left WWE and what it would take to get him back in the ring. That and so much more. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid I've got some bad news. It's Stu Bennett. Well, Stu, I've been wanting to do this interview for a long, long time. So uh, thank you for finding the time to do this. Yeah, my pleasure. This is It's been a hell of a month for me. We've been promoting the new movie that's come out, Iron Vengeance Retaliation. This is the final interview I am doing of the run, I think, unless I get an email telling me they've booked 10 more for me. But this is number 43. 42 down. This is the last one. Save the best for last, Chris. Well, I appreciate you saying that, or hopefully you're, you know, you're not burnt out by the time these interviews, you know. Are oh, I was burnt out after the first three. I've just been chugging away, though, you know. <laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs> I just watched I Am Vengeance Retaliation the other day, and you, you are a bona fide action star. Cool. It's a lot of fun. I'll be honest with you. Um, the transition from being a pro wrestler who was probably best known for my speaking ability and persona um, a transition from that into the world of acting and especially the action world is relatively easy in terms of um, transitions from one industry to another. I love doing it. I get all the thrills that I used to get from pro wrestling, but in a very different environment. So I'd still get to be this performer and have a lot of fun and work with different people. And um, I'm enjoying it. Thank you very much for the kind words there. Well, you say that uh, there's a lot of similarities, but I also know that the wrestling that you did in the ring is nothing like the combat that you do in a film. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say wrestling in a ring hurts a lot more, that's for sure. Um, I'm sure people who watch this show are probably pretty clued in about professional wrestling. It is a simulation. Um, I don't think I'm letting the cat out of the bag for anyone listening there, but we do hit each other. We do kick each other. We slam each other and throw each other around. In the film world, the way the fight scenes are kind of set up there, you don't generally punch each other. You you throw a punch and it misses by a few inches and you, you're only really playing to one camera, which is kind of behind you and they'll set it up so it doesn't show that you're missing the punch and all this stuff so actors tend to get very upset if you punch them for real and i learned mm, that i wonder why quite early on so being a pro wrestler in, in 2015 and when i did a fight scene in the uk on a film called eliminators with a guy called scott adkins who's yeah. one of the top uh, uk kind of action film fight guys and we did this fight scene and in the set up for it in the the test okay here's the plan we're going to do this let's have a little practice run and I, of course, went in pro wrestler mode and threw a punch straight to his head. <laughs> immediately, shut it down, stop, everyone stop. The fight coordinator steps in. Hey, Stu, you do know we're not supposed to be punching each other here. This is, then they taught me, okay, the footwork's like this, the throwing the punches like this and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the interesting yeah, it's thing a learning about, curve. The interesting thing about making a movie is like inches really matter. Like in terms of like how far you turn your head or hitting your marks, especially, you know, landing punches and stuff. Would that be one of the biggest differences for you? 
yeah, everything's so precise, footwork and everything. You've got to hit an exact mark. And sometimes they'll put little chalk marks on the floor, little bits of tape on the floor. And it's even little things like if I turn my face slightly this way, a bad shadow gets casted on there. Or if you step two inches too far forward, there's a bad shadow on the person standing next to you. It's all so precise and exact on exactly how you need to walk. And sometimes they'll shoot the same scene 10, 12 times and um, halfway through they'll move the cameras around. But you need to remember exactly which foot you led off on when you started walking, exactly the spot you stopped, where you, I know, scratched your shoulder as you were walking and you've got to do the same thing every single time. Whereas in obviously the pro wrestling world, we tend to have a a very light structure as to what we're doing in in a match, but it's so much improv and just figuring out, okay, he's going to drop kick me now. There you go. Okay. What should I do? I don't know. (laughs) You're kind of figuring out as you go along and there's no retakes or anything like that. In wrestling, you got one shot to make it happen. In movies, you go until it's right. Exactly. Well, I mean, sometimes you've got to you're limited for time on, especially on indie movies. This was a, an independent film. It wasn't a Hollywood major blockbuster with, you know, 12 months of filming time or anything like that. So sometimes we are pushed for time on film, but again, you, you're never going to put something on film in the final edit. That's a complete disaster. You're going to, you're going to have opportunities to edit around it, even if the take was really bad. But generally, like I say, you get a few, a few goes at it, which it's interesting balancing your adrenaline levels, especially in a fight scene or something like that. Sometimes you're throwing the same punch 10 times till you get the right one. Um, so it's interesting trying to keep that level of adrenaline up when you might be filming a fight scene. One fight might take you eight hours to film the entire fight scene, which when wow. it's edited, edited down, it might last 90 seconds and you've spent the entire day having this fight scene. And, uh, the interesting yeah. thing is you mentioned, you mentioned managing your adrenaline and I was heard some other actors talking on a podcast about how your body doesn't know the difference between real and fake. Your body doesn't know that you're faking this fight right now or that you're faking crying right now. So like, you probably just really have to like manage those emotions. That's true. And I I would say um, I get myself very worked up on fight scene days. The way we filmed this film, we we had the drama days where we're doing the dialogue and all that kind of stuff. And then we tend to have four or five days that were pure fight scene days. So they were were spaced out. So we had recovery days of of doing the drama in between. But um, yeah, I I have to get myself in a certain frame of mind. And those are normally the days where my temper is pretty short. And, you know, I'm probably not the most conversational. I'm trying to stay in the mood in between takes and trying to stay in this angry badass ass kicker mode which is what i'm supposed to be portraying in the film so yeah i think different people have their their ways of clicking in and out of it i suppose that's always been my way i was the same in wrestling probably an hour before a match i didn't really want to hang out with anyone or talk to anyone i kind of started warming up on my own earphones in start getting loosened up and getting in the the frame of mind probably nerves would be kicking into then prior to going through the curtain and, and getting myself ready for this big event and then Stretching that out over 12 hours of a a fight scene day can be pretty exhausting. You're also listed as an executive producer on this film. So congratulations to you on that. But for people who might not know, what exactly does that mean for this film? So in t- so the first film I did, I Am Vengeance, which came out in 2018, I was just an actor in that one. I'm the, the lead yeah. actor in it. But this one, because it, it was financially successful in terms of the budget, um, it's a little bit of a pat on the back for me. It's an extra credit on IMDb. But also it allows me a little more influence in terms of the script. Now, Ross Boyask, who's the guy who wrote the film, and he's also the guy who directs it. This is his baby. And 99% of what you see on there is absolutely him. But there's certain things when I read the script um that the little tweaks i would make to my character or my dialogue or even some of the 
fight scenes. I didn't like how they were playing out. So I actually have some influence because of my executive producer role in the film. I have some influence on, on what the final product is actually going to look like. And it's not like I'm taking liberties with that, um, but there are certain things that from my background in telling stories in professional wrestling and especially telling stories in the ring on how a fight should go and what would make sense at this point in the, the show. Okay, I'm, I'm the good guy, but I need to be taking heat at this point in the film. Okay, this part of the film is, is the big the big ending. This is supposed to be the hero comeback where I, I get the pat on the back and the, the crowd's all excited. So having a little influence on that and perhaps even giving some of my knowledge from the wrestling world to people in the film world um, in terms of how a fight scene should flow and, and stuff like that. So it's interesting the parallels that I, I can have influence in based on my background in wrestling. You know, there's a lot of people that get into acting and their role is like they're a man in an elevator or they're a bartender or something like that. You, just a few films in, you're the leading man in this yeah. in this franchise. I've been very fortunate, and um, this is my fifth film, um, and it's out around the world now. I should add that. I know uh, when I was doing some of the interviews at first, it wasn't out in certain areas. It is out around the world now, just to throw that in there. Yeah, so um, where can people right, get it if we're, if we're going to throw that in there? Okay, it's on VOD platforms everywhere. There was supposed to be a limited theatrical run at one point, but obviously with the virus, that's all been shut down. So it's on all major VOD platforms, wherever you get your movies, iTunes or Amazon or wherever else it is. I'm not, right. I'm not an expert on all the, uh, the big locations to get these, but wherever you get your films, it's on there. And it was on direct TV in the, the U S also, but going back to what you were saying there, um, I've been very fortunate. This is my fifth film. Um, and I think in four of the five films, I've been in a leading role, either as the number one, which has been the two vengeance films or as a number two, like the, the lead villain, which has been in a couple of other films. So I've been very lucky. Um, and one of the cool things about having success in the wrestling world is it has op opened up opportunities in other worlds that I clearly would not have got this quickly. Um, so anytime you get a jump on a ladder, you, you can leverage whatever you have to allow you to get that jump, you've got to take it. It's the same in pro wrestling and, and guys like, um, take a Kurt Angle, for example, one of the greatest sure. wrestlers of all time, but he leveraged his success in the Olympics, gold medalist in the Olympics, into bouncing into a very high position in the professional wrestling world. And of course, he killed it, um, but it's, it's leverage of success in one game, hopefully leading into opportunities earlier in another game. So I'm very fortunate to get that. I'm also lucky that, in terms of improving as a wrestler, it took me years and years to start climbing up that experience ladder because you're only ever as good as the guys you get to work with. And generally in wrestling, you, you start off wrestling other guys who are kind of crap. You get a little bit better each time. You start making a lot of mistakes. It, it took me years and years, probably really until I got to the, the OVW, uh, FCW, and really onto the main roster with WWE when I was working with guys like Randy Orson and John Cena until I got those reps working with the best people out there. So to be in the film world and getting those reps so early on and, and getting lead roles, which is a lot of dialogue and a lot of scenes, and also working with great fight choreographers like Tim Mann, who's in this one, and, and actors like Vinnie Jones and Scott Adkins and, and Stuff like that. I'm very fortunate to get that, and hopefully it improves my performance a lot quicker than it would if I was back climbing that ladder slowly again. Well, you got your reps in with some of the best in the game in your first film. In Dead Man Down, you were sharing screen time with Colin Farrell and Terrence Howard, which is, I mean, that's got to skyrocket the, the learning curve for you. 
Yeah, of course. And that was a, that one came out of the blue. I'd actually got injured about a month before they called me with that one. It was through WWE Studios and I was all down and depressed. I think I was just about to head into surgery the next day and I was miserable. It was my first major injury and I'd had this run with the Nexus and I kind of kind of been lost in the way a little bit after that with the core and I was a bit down about my career, but still had that hunger and I wanted to climb the ladder. So when that injury came out of nowhere, it was a pretty dark time, but I got a call from Triple H who was just starting to move into the talent relations world at that point. And he said, hey, we've got this film coming up. We think you'd be a great fit for it. I think they knew I was a good speaker and, and I could present myself pretty well. Um, and he said, hey, it's, it might not be a huge role, but it's working with this guy, this guy, and this guy. What do you think? And then my options are, okay, do I do this really cool opportunity or do I sit at home moping around on my couch for the next five months? So, of course, I grabbed that and turned up there. And that was really my first taste of working in the film world um, on that set. And it was a hell of an experience. It was a two-month shoot. It was a pretty big budget, too. Um, it was, I think, a $40 million budget wow. working with some major stars and, and um, directors, Neil, Niels Arden Oplev, who'd, who'd achieved a hell of a lot by that point in his career, too. So getting that taste was great. I would say my performance on there and what I was actually required to do, despite the fact that I was spread over two months, was very limited. I was kind of in the background of a ton of scenes. I was a heavy for Terrence Howard, who was the lead villain in the film. So I had a few lines here and there, but... More than anything, it gave me a taste of working on film sets, a little, little testing the water, so to speak, and, and seeing what this is about. And I came away from that um, knowing that, okay, this, is, this would be pretty cool to do some more of this. If, if anything ever comes up in this world, I'd, I'd definitely want to explore it. And uh, luckily, things have worked out pretty well for me. And yeah, I'd say so. And I'd say that some of the best way to learn is sometimes just by watching. So maybe Terrence Howard or Colin Farrell didn't say something specific to you, but did you watch them on set or watch the way that they interacted with other actors or other people and go, oh, that, that's, that's how it's done? Yeah, I, I was honestly went into that as really a blank page and I had no idea how the movie world worked or how things were filmed because my experience of movies had been watching movies at home, which is you see the final cut, the final edit, and yeah. also, I suppose, the pro wrestling world, which is very much shooting live and we don't do retakes. So to go on a set like that, which was a, a big budget, set and they have a lot of time for retakes and realize that okay this scene that they brought me in for 10 hours to do where i'm literally just standing there they are going to film this 12 times from one direction then we're all going to go away for an hour and we're going to come back and film the exact same thing from the opposite direction but they have to move all the lights around and i just have to keep walking these three steps and standing still and this was yeah. 12 hours of work and it was amazing to me that this is how how it worked i assumed they had six cameras filming the one scene we did it and if anyone messed up the lines we did it again then we go and do the next one but every angle they shoot from each camera and then you'll notice in a, a scene for a film they'll sometimes be cut into six close up a face close up of this face they're moving the lights and moving everyone around each time and moving the set around slightly so the shadows aren't it's it was an amazing experience to see that this is what actually goes into producing a film. And um, yeah. The dangerous thing though, is in between those takes, the craft services table is just sitting there screaming your name with all kinds of delicious food on it. <laughs> I'm a naturally skinny man. I would say that was right after I, I had a surgery, I probably lost about 
two and a half or three stone, which in American terms is about 40 pounds. So when wow. I, yeah, when I had surgery, I'm, I'm, my weight just falls off me. I've never had the issue of being a fat guy. If I eat a cake or something like that, I know different people have different metabolisms. Ryback is the opposite of me, as you can probably tell by his build. He's a huge guy, but if he starts pigging out on stuff, he'll get fat really quickly. Uh, so you would appreciate me saying that. I love taking digs at Ryback. He's a good friend of mine and yours, I believe. He is. Um, yes. I love Ryback. But um, yeah, so I mean, I, I could pig out and I, in all honesty, I probably needed to because I'd lost all this weight and uh, I was rehabbing my arm, which had broken and uh, slowly getting back in shape. So I, that's never been a big concern of mine. A little more now I'm getting older. I'm almost 40 and I have to watch the diet a little closer now. But um, generally speaking, I'm a, a skinny guy who's always trying to get bigger. So you had no intention of getting into film, no intention of acting if it wasn't for this injury? Um, I, I just don't think I'd have ever got my foot in the door in the first place. It's difficult to say I would never have done it. I think I always enjoyed performing. Clearly, I became a professional wrestler and right. in drama classes in school and things like that. I always enjoyed being the performer and you know presenting. And I, th I think in the back of my head, yeah, I'd like to do that. But how do you ever break into that how do you ever get your first role and where, where do you go and how does it even start so uh, i got very lucky that that fell into my lap and then a couple of years after that um, they called me with a role for eliminators i think uh, michael luisi who was in charge of wwe studios he was the president he's, he's moved on now but he liked what i'd done in the in the film with um, Dead Man Down and, and came to me a couple of years later and said, look, I've got this bigger opportunity. I know what you did in Dead Man Down was great, but it was kind of a limited role, but I've got this opportunity for you now. It's a smaller budget film, but we want you to be basically the lead bad guy in the film. And a um, bunch of fight scenes, they pitched that to me and told me who the director was, a guy called James Dunn, and that was going to be filmed in London. So obviously that was an easy sell to me. And yeah, you take four weeks off your, your wrestling career and go do this. And of course I grabbed that and had a great time over in London filming that film. So if you hadn't gotten injured, what would the path have continued to be for you in WWE? Ah, who knows? I was on a real low ebb when I got injured. So not that there's ever a good time to get injured, but that was as good a time as any. If you're, you're not doing anything, it's different if you're, okay, I'm in the build to WrestleMania and I'm about to take on Roman Reigns in the main event. And three weeks before I come down with an injury, that would have been disastrous. But I think I just, I think... Right before I got injured in 2012, I'd just been eliminated from a battle royal by Santino Morella. And I'm a huge Santino fan. Um, he's one of the funniest guys I've ever been around and one of the best comedic wrestlers of all time. I genuinely believe that. But I think it says a lot about where my career was at that point that Santino was, <laughs> was eliminating me out of a battle royal. Because I've heard people actually say, oh, he was about to get this big run for the money in the bank. I wasn't. It was, I was at a real low ebb at that point. And it was a good opportunity for me, A, to get away and do something else, which just fell into my lap. But then hopefully uh, the desire is when you come back, okay, this is a reset opportunity. And when I come back in six months time, fingers crossed, there's, there's going to be a little push for me. And, and I'll so with I Am Vengeance that. Retaliation, we're now two movies in. It looks like there could be a third one, maybe a fourth one. Is that the plan to continue to make this a franchise? Well, when Ross Boyas, the director, first approached me about doing the original I Am Vengeance, um, he did say to me, it's like, hey, listen, this, this, the plan for this is to turn this into a franchise. Here's the first script. We think you'd be perfect to play John Gold, the lead in the film. The plan is that if this goes out and it goes well and people like it and it makes some money, we want to turn it into a franchise. And I have all these arcs, these story ideas. We could even do a prequel, go back in time and tell some of the, the backstory of John yeah. Gold. So 
of course, being a veteran of the entertainment industry, I was like, yeah, whatever, this guy, he's full of it, right? Turns out he, was, he actually wasn't full of it. He's one of the, the rarities in the entertainment world who was actually telling me the truth, which is nice. So, uh, yeah, he was right. He um, Very soon after the first film came out in 2018, and we realized, okay, this has done pretty well. Let's pitch to the um, the guys who are backing the film financially. Let's pitch a sequel. And uh, we managed to get a bigger budget for it. And obviously that allowed us to bring in Vinnie Jones, a guy of his caliber and, and name value. Um, and again, if this one does well, which fingers crossed the initial numbers that I've seen have, have been very, very positive from around the world. So hopefully that keeps going. Fingers crossed we get a third out of it. And I know Ross, the director and the, the writer, he's already written scripts for a third and a fourth. Oh uh, and, he, and he has a bunch of ideas too that are currently unwritten. So pitches are ready. Uh, it's just a numbers game at this point. It's horrible to be clinical about it i like to stay in the arty side of things and, and do the the fun part which is making the film and acting yeah. and promoting the film but then there's also the spreadsheet people who are behind this and allow us to do this kind of stuff and they have to be happy too and fingers crossed that all goes well and then pitches can be thrown out and hopefully we get a third maybe a fourth and keep well and the first film's on netflix right now so i rewatched that again uh, after watching the second one the other day. So I rewatched it again. It being on Netflix though, means it's accessible to everybody at basically no charge other than paying your Netflix membership. That's it. It's great um, advertising pretty much for the film or the franchise that it's on Netflix, the first one. Um, I think it's just, so it was on Netflix in the US, just to be clear. I know you have global listenership. I believe in the UK, it's just gone onto Amazon Prime. So regional places have different um, requirements on who gets to stream it and whatever deals each region has, has struck. Um, but yeah, it's great. It's out there. Maybe the second one at some point we'll, we'll get a deal for that, but currently it's VOD and um, it's just good advertising for, for the brand in general and that franchise and, and let people see it. And hopefully if they like the first one, then they'll go check out the second one. I really want to dive into your, your process here. So you get a script and then what happens from there? Okay, well, to go back in time and give you the first one. Okay. Um, it was, so this is the first I Am Vengeance movie. It was, I found it very difficult because I was still fairly new to the script world and especially jumping into a, a lead role um, because you have to really understand every single scene in the movie and how they all fit together and why this character is presenting themselves in this way at this point, but later on something changes and why is that change and what's the, the moments you need to highlight in the script. And I'll be honest with you, I read that script probably 10 times before it slowly started sinking in because you read on page three about this character who does this, and then you forget about them because in page right. 43, they're suddenly back again. And you're like, what did that person? It's just words on it and, you know, words on a page that wasn't fitting in. And the more I read it, the slowly started making a bit more sense. But I would say that um, when it came to the second film, my experience was, was growing at this point. I think the first Avengers film was my third film. The second Avengers film is my fifth film, and now I'm a little better with it. It takes me perhaps two or three reads to get a good grip on it. And then you break down each scene into the ones you're shooting each day. So you'll get a small um, set of sides, they call them. Which So rather than give you the full script every day, okay, we're filming these three pages of the script today and, and breaking it down that way. And then you get to really focus on this specific scene. So are you like, when you first get the script and you're breaking it down, are you taking notes like crazy all over the page? Yeah, first thing I do is highlight all of my character's lines. So that's always the first thing. I like to know exactly where my character is going to fit into everything, um, but definitely annotating all around it. Okay, this is 
this character here I'm going to get to fight later on so we're sowing the seeds of dissension at this point mm. in the film or something like that so I'll break it down quickly that way and one of the toughest things that happens is in the run-up to the film um, you'll keep getting rewrites and redrafts. So you'll go through your script that you got four weeks out, highlight everything, annotate it, all looks brilliant, you've got it all down, and then you'll suddenly realize that a week later they've sent you an updated script and two of the scenes are now cut. They've added this new one in, some of the dialogue has changed, and now you're basically starting again with those areas. And that'll happen four, five, six times before the start of the film. And even when the film is filming, um, maybe you've had a day that you've had to film where the plan was a load of stuff outside, but it's actually raining. We're in the UK, it rains a lot. We can't do all that stuff. It's not going to work because of the weather and the weather's different to the continuity of the scene we shot earlier. So we, we now have to move this somewhere else and then the scenery changes. And if the scenery changes, you're now indoors. You can't do that car scene that you were planning to do. So there's constant rewrites and changes, especially in the world of indie film where you press for time and you don't have this. Okay, well, it's raining today. Let's just come back tomorrow and hopefully it'll be sunny. I'm sure some of the bigger budget films can do that kind of thing but uh we we have to roll with the punches a little more in indie film you know the comparisons are obviously there between the people who have done the wrestling and are now in hollywood you know before you with obviously the rock batista john cena now is that the path that they've blazed that you would like to be on uh, i wouldn't say that necessarily i'm at a point in life where i like to take opportunities that come to me that I want to grab as opposed to chasing something specific. I think when I was younger, I was chasing a very specific goal and my life was very regimented and directed towards getting to WWE, first of all. And then when I was in WWE, continuing success, climbing the ladder and hopefully becoming WWE champion or yeah. headline in WrestleMania or whatever, whatever it was. I don't really put that kind of pressure on myself anymore. I've been very fortunate since leaving WWE that good opportunities have tended to come to me and um, I'm, in, I'm in a position where if I like an opportunity I will take it if it sounds good and if I don't like it I can turn it down and um, I'm in a lucky position because of that financially I did well at WWE that I don't have to grab every opportunity that comes to me so I'm very selective I have an agent in the UK and I've just signed with one here in LA um, and I've told them look I want to be selective I don't want to take a role just because it's a role and um, the other weird thing is because I've been in these lead positions in films um, it's kind of hard to then want to go and step down and be the man in the elevator that's just stood in the right. background or something like that. So I, I am also very protective of where I'm at positioning-wise in film too because offers come in and opportunities arise that if I take them, it kind of drops my stock to an extent too. And it's the same in the wrestling world. I know a lot of, especially the independent wrestlers, they'll only have a certain level of independent show they'll work to. They won't go lower than that. And they won't yeah. wrestle certain guys because it lowers their stock. If you have this star in one region going and working the opening match against a, a local guy and losing in a, another region, it can lower their stock. So there's, there's an element of that too. But in general, I if an opportunity is good, I will do it. And it will, it's fun. It will benefit my career or pay well then i'm definitely going to look at it and if not then you know what i'm going to give this one a pass and um go do some wrestling commentary for a bit or go host the show on netflix or whatever it is and uh that's that's how i operate these days yeah before before quarantine started you had a lot going on you had a lot on your plate especially i mean wrestling fans would see you every single week on nwa power it's obviously come to a screeching halt now with uh, everything that's been going on in the world but how did the power thing come together? How did, how did that come together? Because obviously you filled in for Jim Cornette, who decided to leave. 
Yeah, so that was an interesting one. I think for the past couple of years, I was getting calls from NWA. They'd started their reboot two or three years ago. And Nick Aldis is a former former colleague of mine. We actually started off training together in the UK in 2004. He was my first ever singles match. So I was aware of what was going on in there. We've kind of stayed in touch ever since. And um, I saw he was their champ and he was doing well. I was being sent there. 10 pounds of gold series and all the information on that. And um, it was pretty exciting times, but I think they were contacting me frequently because they wanted me to get back in the ring and be one of their their main guys on their roster as they rebooted. And that wasn't right. in the cards for me. I wasn't looking to get back in the ring um, that soon anyway. Maybe I will at some point. But um, I told them, look, I've done quite a lot of commentary before. I've done commentary for Florida Championship Wrestling while I was in developmental. I've done it for What Culture Pro Wrestling in the UK or Defiant, which it became, and also World of Sport. I love doing that. Um, so if you have anything in that world that ever comes up, Please think of me, and I'd love to talk to you about that. But as, as far as the in-ring stuff, I'm not actually looking for that right now. And we stayed in touch, and they would send me episodes of NWA Power and say, hey, look, here's our new series. It's NWA Power. What do you think? Give us a critique and, and stuff like that. And I'd have a look at it, and I was always very impressed with it. I thought it was well-polished, and um, I liked the narrative style of pro wrestling that they're doing that it's very storyline based a lot of promos a lot of characters personas which is the kind of wrestling that i got into when i first discovered wrestling in the late 80s in the the 90s that's what wrestling was based around um so for me it was a refreshing change from most of wrestling that's out there currently which i feel is lacking in those departments so i enjoyed it but um again i wasn't looking to get back in the ring and we just stayed in touch and then suddenly the jim Cornette thing happened where he decided to move on from his role and i think three or four days after that happened, they realized shit we've got to get someone in pretty soon we've, yeah uh, we've got a pay-per-view coming up next week and we've got a tape um the nwa power series that they taped to in atlanta so i got a call then and they were sounding me out about it they knew i was fa a fan of the show already um and very quickly we came to an agreement and i was excited to go join them so you basically got a call and then a few days later you were commentating for them exactly and that was wow. you know it's probably I'm trying to think when I filmed, I think I did WOS or World of Sport in 2018, uh, summer 2018. So I probably hadn't done any commentary for about 18 months at that wow. point. Um, so I agree, I got the call and they were like, hey, here's what it is. I was already up to speed on the storylines and the characters and the personas. I uh, needed to do a little bit of research here and there, but for the most part, I knew what was going on, which helped. Um, but yeah, I'd say four or five days later, I was on a flight to um, Atlanta and, and bang, right, you're live on pay-per-view, go. And uh, for the first time ever, I worked with Joe Galley, who's the play-by-play -play commentator there. I knew that was going to be a great fit because I'd heard his work with Jim Cornette on the first season of NWA Power. I knew how good he was. Um, yeah. I think people were concerned that like, you two don't even know each other. You've never met each other before. How's this going to go chemistry-wise? I had no fear whatsoever. I know what I can do. And because I knew he was so good at play-by-play, -play, I had no fear at all. And um, I think we clicked very quickly. Um, does take time to build chemistry, but I think from the word go, we were live on pay-per-view, and I think we, we fit together very nicely. Yeah, I, I mean, almost instantly, you guys had this great chemistry, and it just goes to show how good you are and how good Joe is at this. Thank you. I mean, I will say that as the color guy, it's my responsibility to add some personality, and it's my my job to go everywhere I want. I can go all the way in this direction, all the way in that direction. The play-by-play -play guy's job is to bring everything back and keep us going in a straight line. So he's so good at that, that it allows me the freedom to go all over the place. And it reminded me a lot of working with Byron Saxton 
um, while I was in Florida Championship Wrestling. And that was my first taste of um, color commentary while I was down there. Dusty Rhodes put me on as color commentator with him. I'd never done it before. And of course, I was concerned, well, can I really do this? How do you talk for an hour constantly about yeah. pro wrestling and what's going on? How do you keep this in- interesting and not stumble your words and make a fool of yourself? But very quickly, I fit into a persona while I was at the desk and I was able to do that because Byron Saxton was so good at pulling everything together and keeping us going in a straight line that it gave me the freedom to have fun, show some personality and, and hopefully entertain people. Hey, it's Chris popping in for just a second to thank our sponsor for this episode, Bet Online. Sports are coming back, and that means so are your chances to bet on your favorite sports teams and events. And there's no better place to start than our exclusive partners, Bet Online. Get in on the action for this week's big UFC fight or check out the odds on NASCAR, Formula 1, and the Premier League. Can't wait for your team to come back? Well, Bet Online has futures odds, including win totals, division winners, and even league championships. Or check out daily simulations of Madden and NBA 2K to watch and wager on. Visit betonline.ag. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. That is one word BLUEWIRE, B L U E W I R E. Bet Online your online wagering experts. Well, WWE, Impact, and AEW have all found a way to keep their show going. Has NWA looked into how they can keep power going? Yeah, so very quickly when this pandemic broke out and everyone got locked down, probably the end of February, beginning of March, um, NWA management came out and said very specifically, there is no circumstances by which we will be putting on shows without a crowd there. They see, uh, Billy Corgan specifically sees the audience as an integral part of professional wrestling. And um, I actually agree with him. I've seen the stuff that other companies are doing, not to take a shot at them. I just think you lose so much when a fan base isn't there. It's not like a pure sport like football or, or rugby or soccer or whatever, where, okay, the, the importance here is really the winning and losing. In wrestling, it really isn't the most important part. As yeah. we all know in this day and age, the important part is the entertainment and the emotion that it brings out. And it's very difficult to bring out that emotion when you don't have the audience there because as a television viewer a lot of your reaction is based on that crowd and how they're responding and i heard a great quote a few years ago i can't remember who said it but it was along the i'm paraphrasing here but it was along the lines of a good crowd takes a so a, a great crowd takes a good match and makes it great. Mm. And it also takes a bad match and makes it good. So the the crowd being alive, and especially when you're in those arenas where they're on their feet constantly and the, the, the day after WrestleMania type of crowd sure. where everything you do is just exploding, those make the matches even better. And when that crowd isn't there or you have a completely dead crowd, it makes the the show a little torturous to watch and, um, and perform into, I will say. So sometimes you just get those crowds that want to sit on their hands and, and aren't into it. Uh, and that can be tough. And that, that comes across to the TV viewer. And it's very yeah. rarely, it's very rarely that no, even if the, the match in the ring is really good technically and everything's been done right, if the crowd aren't responding to it, then the viewers at home think this was a terrible match just because that audience hasn't responded. Whereas if you'd have turned up the volume on that audience, it could be the exact same match and it would have been an amazing match because people are going nuts for it. And that's, you lose all of that when you have no crowd there, obviously. Well, I think unfortunately, you know, for these other companies, their hands are tied because they've got 
these TV contracts that they have to put out a product every single week. Of course, um, it's impossible. I would never take a shot of them for it. I know it's very easy, me sitting at home working or having worked for a company that isn't doing it and, and being nice and safe. It's very easy for me to take a shot of those guys for doing it. That's not my point at all. They are literally handcuffed to these deals. And if they don't produce the content, then they aren't fulfilling their obligations. That money's yeah. getting pulled and potentially, depending on the company, their company may be bust after that. So they have to look after the business side too. And by looking after the business, they're also looking after the employees and people who work for them. So it's a horrible balance to strike. So there's no plan right now for NWA until things clear up in the world. Well, I think we were slowly getting closer to it. I'd heard rumors of, eh, we're kind of looking at October of, of doing something if things continue going well. And then suddenly the US anyway had this giant spike and we're all back to square one now. So I would be amazed, and this is not coming from anyone in management, I would be amazed if, if NWA puts on a show in the rest of 2020 just based on how all this stuff is spiking up again. I just don't think it's going to be safe for the rest of the year for anyone to be putting on a show or having the crowd there and all that stuff. So uh, do not take my word for it. At the end of the day, it's Billy Corgan's decision. Um, but I would be surprised if anything comes in 2020. And of course, you know, I'm hearing rumors now that this vaccine is getting closer and fingers crossed we can all get this vaccine and get back to normal as soon as possible. Because until that happens, let's face it, nothing is, is going to be resolved. And this virus is just going to keep on spiking up. Well, you guys film in Atlanta and Atlanta is one of the cities where they, the mayor basically said, no, we're going back, like lockdown. We're, yeah. we're, we're reverting back. We're putting the toothpaste back in the tube here. Exactly. I'm, I'm in Los Angeles and it's the same here and every all the restaurants are completely closed down again. The beaches are all closed. I know you've just moved here. I think we, yeah, were, I moved having, here three we, were, days ago. we were having a chat a couple of weeks ago. You're like, no, I've, I've heard it's opening up again. And I was like, uh, we'll see about that. And, and it, was, it was, it was, it was briefly, but uh, now it's, it's closed down again. So, I said well. to my friends, as long as I can go to the gym, when I get out there, I'll be good. So I started my drive on Sunday and on Monday, they said, as of tomorrow, the gyms are going to be closed. Oh man, I, I invested in some power block dumbbells and a bench and stuff. I, I've given up for the rest of this year. I just wish I had room for a squat rack. That's the one thing I'm really missing. I, I don't have room for a squat rack, rack in my apartment, but uh, yeah. we got to go to Ryback's place then. Yeah, that's a four-hour drive. It's a long way to go for a leg workout. Eight hours of driving there and back just to work out legs with Ryback. But uh, maybe we can make a fun. YouTube video out of it. Me, you, and the <laughs> Ryback. Oh yeah, we can have some feed me more nutrition supplements too. He'll appreciate that plug. I, I, his pre-workout is I don't know what he puts in there. Maybe it's cocaine. But when you drink that, you're like, ah. Yeah, it's it's the wildest one on the market. I will say that. And his, his shaker too is very good. Best shaker on the market. <laughs> That shaker cup is so good. Is he sponsoring your show? Is that the deal? No, he should, right? <laughs> I just, uh, I start every day with his pre-workout. And I mean, I'm not a coffee or caffeine person, but his pre-workout like yeah, takes me from a 10 out of 10 to like a 14 out of 10. It, it's wild. That's the first one. That's the first pre-workout in history that I take less than the recommended amount. Uh, most of them I wow. take two. Most of them it says take one scoop. I end up taking two or three because I'm big and I'm used to it and all that stuff. His, I can't even take a full scoop of. I'm, I'm a half a scoop of one of his. So wow. it's wild. Yeah, it's wild. And I don't know if people really appreciate how large you are, because when you're in a ring around other large men, you, know, you just look like a dude. But then when like someone like me, who's a normal sized human, meets you and you're almost a foot taller than me. Yeah, almost exactly a foot taller than me. I'm 5'10". <laughs> you're 6'7"? I'm 6'6". Six, 6'7 six. Six, in my boots, I think, is, is how they used to be. They actually built me a 6'5 at one point, which is literally shorter they? than me. I was furious about that, naturally. Because <laughs> they build they build Seamus' 6'6", six, six, 
and me at six five, and I'm actually three inches taller than him. So I was naturally furious about that. But uh, we got that fixed in the end. And they in they the movie world, though, you are a giant. Yeah, I'm Andre the Giant in the movie, especially in the UK movie. Like British people aren't generally as big as American people. I know you have all your basketball players and stuff like that out out here, and your clothes and everything are bigger out here. But uh, yeah, in the movie world i am an absolute monster which actually comes into play when it when it comes to even auditioning for roles and stuff like that there's a lot of roles that i'm just not cut out for for example i was put forward at one point while i was living in manhattan for a role as a doctor um and even though there are doctors like me in real life six foot six isn't that crazy um they i walk in the room they take one look at you and, and they know this guy's way too big to be a doctor. Can't play a doctor. It has to be a bouncer or a boxer or something like that. So you do get kind of typecast. Um, so that limits my opportunities, I suppose, in the in the film world. But you just if it works, I'll do it. I can play action man roles or, or whatever it is. So hey, if that works, I'll, I'll do that. But the good news is when you get called into that room for a casting, you know that they're looking for you. You know that they're looking for someone like you. When I go to a casting... I'm generic, you know, average sized guy with dark hair. Like there's a, there's a hundred of me. You know? but, but the interesting thing is, and I've heard this quite a few times, you, I know you're fairly new into your, your acting journey at this point, but um, this doesn't happen for guys like me, but a guy like you, what can often happen is you go and read for one role. Um, but they're actually casting six or seven roles mm. of, of guys that, okay, he didn't get the role he specifically wanted, but tell you what, you would be perfect for this role. Whereas I go in, they've got one role and there's <laughs> me. And sometimes I'll, so I, I've turned up at a, a room, a waiting room before, and it's horrible because you walk in there. I feel good. I'm walking down the street. Okay, cool. I look okay. I'm pretty big. They want a big, strong guy. I walk in there and there's like six guys who are all more jacked and meaner looking than me. I'm like, I've got no chance of this one. And, you know, so it's, it's it can be very heartbreaking when you're in those positions. But I'd say the more, I hate to call you generic looking, but the more- I called myself look, that. So. You did. That's why I'm using that term. It's a horrible word to, to describe. But you, you have a- you have a frame and a face that fits into a lot more roles than I ever would. Well, then instead of calling it generic, we'll call it all-encompassing. All-encompassing. I like that. That's a bit more positive, right? You and I will definitely never be in a casting room together. Yeah, if we we end up in a casting room together going for the same role, either my agent or your agent has done a very bad job and and one of us needs to fire them. (laughs) When you get a script uh, or your sides for the day, what's your technique for learning those lines? Um, again, going back to what I said earlier about the script constantly changing, um, I, I don't tend to learn the entire script, um, early on and an average script just so you know, for like a two hour film is about hundred, 110 pages long. Um, so what tends to happen is you read this, you read it, read it, really get it all down, get it all in your head, what the story is. But then on each specific day of filming, and there might be four, a four-week shoot, for example, and 20 filming days, um, each day you will get your sides for the day, which is you know three or four pages of that script that we are filming today. Um, so then I'll, I'll for you, and you usually get them a day in advance or something like that. So you can work on your lines for tomorrow uh, while you're going home and you're sitting your dinner and get up in the morning, get picked up, and I'll be in the car learning them, going over them. And maybe when I get to the the place we're shooting, I'll pull the direct director and um one of the actresses or whoever i've got scenes with that day pull them do you want to run through this a couple of times and we will try different ways of performing it and a very very truncated amount of practice time or rehearsal time um because then we're okay guys ready shoot this first scene let's get on set now the um the camera 
guys and lighting have been rigging everything already. They're ready to go. So get in costume and, and let's get out there. And so you kind of break it up into day by day. And then you'll find that, good job I didn't learn the whole script because three weeks in, they've actually completely changed that final scene because such and such didn't play out like we thought it would when we filmed it. So let's, let's tweak it slightly. And, uh, and then you just pick up from there. You've really found your footing in this acting world. And it, I, I kind of feel like it happened by, well, it's a lot of hard work, but kind of happened by accident because when you left WWE, this wasn't part of your plan. I don't, I don't know. I don't think you had a plan. No, not really. I knew this. I, to be fair, when I was leaving WWE, I did already have I Am Vengeance 1 kind of in my pocket. It wasn't signed, sealed, delivered at that point. Um, but it, very soon afterwards, it was a nice join for me to jump into doing that. I already knew the idea was there and they were pitching it to me. So I felt pretty comfortable that I was going to do that. But I would say six months before, probably nine months before I left WWE, I'd already made the decision that I was going to leave. My contract was running out. I wasn't going to re-sign there. And I am Vengeance One wasn't around at that point. So yeah, you were right. When I made the decision to actually leave WWE, it wasn't to jump to anything else. I was just so miserable and fed up with what I was doing that I didn't care if I sat on the beach for the next five years. I was not <laughs> going to be on a plane flying out to Peoria, Illinois, and, and wrestling or, or wherever it might be. Sorry, people of Peoria, Illinois. You're always the you're always the punchline in in WWE locker rooms for some reason. That's always the go to. Oh God, it wants to be in Peoria, Illinois. And, uh, poor guys, nice place to. It's not so bad there, right? Shreve, Shreveport, Louisiana is another one. Peoria, Illinois, and Shreveport, Louisiana. They're the two. Oh, God, Shreveport. I can't wait to see all the comments now for people that live in those cities. Sorry, everyone. I'll never be welcome back there. What, was there one specific thing that happened in WWE that made you go, that's it, I'm done, I want my contract to run out? Um, I think it was probably a period of time of, of things slowly not going my way i would say so i always had from the very early days of my wrestling career i always had the carrot dangled of okay i'm chasing this chasing this chasing this, climbing up a ladder and, and slowly making more and more progress and i'd say probably around the time of bad news barrett i felt that okay i looked great at the time i got shredded my catchphrase is over the fans are reacting to everything i'm doing here um my merchandise was selling for the first time in my career, apart from Nexus shirts, which weren't really mine. Um, I had a shirt that was the number one seller. I was yeah. like, wow, I'm, I'm really, and I actually felt for the first time too, I'm my in-ring work, I was actually happy with it for the first time ever. I know when I debuted in WWE in 2010, I was still pretty green. I'd only really been working six-minute matches in FCW and uh, working with a caliber of guys who weren't actually that good on the whole. There was a lot of young green guys who I was working with. So I always felt that I was a step behind to say the least when it came to working with a senior or Randy Orton and those guys. That was in 2010. By 2014, I was that much more experienced and confident now. I had my own in-ring kind of personality and way of moving. And I felt that my matches were very strong too. So I, at that point, I felt there was no reason not to pull the trigger on me and, and kind of move me up to the next level and have me in more main event level spots and build the show to a certain degree around me or my character. Um, and that didn't happen. Um, bad news, Barrett, all got completely taken away from me, which I thought was a very bad idea at the time. And I was given a, the role as the king of the king of the ring, which I didn't want to do from the word go. And um, I was aware that there was no writing backing this up. And I felt very much I'd been booked into a corner of just a dead end. And mm. this isn't going to go anywhere. And after, it's so hard to get over in the wrestling world that when you do get over, you really want to cash in on it and make this count. And so have, to have that taken away from me for, for what I thought was incredibly 
poor foresight of, of giving me the King of the Ring, and then to follow the King of the Ring up with with what I felt was really poor writing and booking. Um, it was the the final straw, I think, after I dedicated so much time and effort into progressing in the wrestling world um, to see that that was my reward was in, in very disappointed. I became disillusioned and at that point. I felt that I need to get out of here. So. Yeah, it's ironic that you'd say King of the Ring, you know, held you back because that's been used as a launching pad for so many people. Was it just that the writing around it, you know, had no direction? Well, first of all, I didn't like the outfit. And I was told several times, I have Vince wants you to wear the outfit. I hated the outfit. I thought it was really hokey and it reminded me of something from pantomime. I don't know if you have pantomime in the US, but that's something we have in the UK. At Christmas time, people dress up in oh, very sure, yeah. camp costumes. It's all a bit, you know he's behind you and all that stuff. it's a bit it's a bit like tongue-in-cheek which wrestling is a little bit like that but if i'm supposed to be a heel and a bad guy i'm wearing this outfit that nobody's taking seriously if you wanted someone to do that give it to heath slater Heath would have loved that it would have worked really well for him that's just not my personality i'm a six foot six broken nose big tattooed heel who's supposed to be nasty and wearing that outfit from the word i second i walk out people are just not interested because this it just doesn't fit it doesn't fit me it doesn't fit my persona heath would have killed it and why mm. they wouldn't give it a guy like heath i don't know or a santino or someone like that but it really kind of neutered me and then the writing that that went with it was also non-existent i could tell that consistently for about six months after i won the king of the ring tournament um i was using what i call filler um so you have these tv contracts that okay we need to do three hours every monday for wwe raw we'll have these highlight moments the main event the opening the crossover segments um but then we've got to fill an extra hour and a half or two hours of this show and we just need to put somebody out there and i felt for six months i was putting these filler spots of we haven't really written anything for this just you go out there and wrestle this guy for five minutes and you lose and, and that's it there's no real story and to be put in that position you accept it occasionally but to be put in that position for a consistent period of time especially after you'd previously been quite over with another character is just disheartening so um yeah well, bad news, Barrett was so over. And was that an instant thing? Did you instantly realize after you started saying this that you were that over? No, it was that, that was a, a bit of a journey because that started on something called the JBL and Cole show, which is uh, JBL, Michael Cole, Cody, uh, and a couple of other people have been doing this quirky internet show for a little while. And they approached me and said, Hey, Stu, I know you're not doing much on the show. I'm raw right now. Do you want to be part of this show? It's a bit quirky. And uh, I thought, you know what? I, I will do it. And Cody, notorious liar in the locker room. And I say that with all, all respect. He's, he's not mean about it, but he likes to just tell bullshit stories about people. And one day I walked in the locker room and he was telling all the, the guys in the locker room that when he was a kid, he used to watch me wrestling. And I was wrestling as a character called Bad News Barrett who would walk into the ring and say, hey, guys, got some bad news. The show's canceled. That was Cody's kind of running joke. So anyway, when they approached me and said, do you want to be part of it? Cody's in it. Um, I was like, yeah, you know what? Make me Bad News Barrett. I just come up and I give everyone bad news. So that became a character for a little while. And it turned out on the internet show that had a pretty small viewership, but um, it was like 100,000 hits a week um, on YouTube, which for a WWE thing isn't actually that big uh, but we again it was getting popular on there and all the youtube comments were i've got some bad news ha, ha, bad news barrett so anyway yeah. it turns out vince one day was shown this by jbl he liked the character he thought it was really funny and he decided then to put me on the the main roster doing this which i was immediately well this 
this isn't really going to work. It works in this quirky, quirky world of JBL and Cole show, which is all kind of a bit hocus pocus and a bit pantomime, but I don't think this is going to work in the real world. But he said, no, just give it a shot. Just, just do promos. And I'd say for the first three or four weeks when I was doing the promos, it was a bit flat and fans didn't know what to make of it. But then slowly but surely they became accustomed to the cadence of the speeches and what was coming. And there was almost that anticipatory moment when they got to chant along with the catchphrase, get the zinger at the end. And then I disappeared and then slowly but surely it was winning people over. And then there was a moment, I think it was the, it was the New Orleans WrestleMania. I think it was 2014, if I remember correctly. WrestleMania um, 30. That was the one. So WrestleMania 30, the Hall of Fame um, was on the night before WrestleMania. and I was there. <laughs> Hall of Fames, although we are honoring the greats of our industry, they can be torturous to sit through. They're, they're sometimes Very long. four and a half, five hours long. And a lot of times the stories and the guys telling the stories on stage, they're not the best promo people and they're wittering on and, there's a lot of downtime and it can be a lot of shuffling around. But anyway, Vince decided the show was needed a bit of life injected into it. And he, he sent me out to do a Bad News Barrett promo towards the end when everyone was kind of ready to go home. And they sent me out and I did this promo. And for the first time ever, the entire arena who were watching chanted, I'm afraid I got some bad news with it. And that was the moment, okay, this is getting over. Like, it was the best reaction I'd had up until that point. Uh, and I walked to the back and Vince was high-fiving me. He was really happy and it kind of energized the crowd. And I think two days after that is when he put me back in the ring and I re-debuted as Bad News Barrett as an in-ring guy, not just a promo guy. And they had me beat Rey Mysterio, which anytime you get to beat Rey Mysterio on TV is a, a huge, huge moment for anyone's career, of course, a legend like like Rey. So that kind of kicked me off in the right direction. With that. And then it was it was easy after that. And every time I went out, fans were reacting and I was getting babyface pops for the first time in my career. And um, ultimately, yeah, it was it was a cool time. Definitely one of my highlights of my career. It's, but it's not just the line. It's how you deliver the line. Because if I say, I'm afraid I've got some bad news, no one cares. But it's your accent and the way that you deliver it that makes it over the top and that much better. Yeah, that's it. I mean, any anytime you get to add um, something character-wise or persona-wise, the accent helps, the growl, the laughter, whatever it is, I realize very quickly. And then I'd, I'd be coming to the back and I'd say to Vince, hey, Vince, I need to add something to this. Can I add a gavel? I love gavels. I think yes, it's really annoying. Right. That will piss people off. And then one day I went to the back and said, I think it needs one more thing. Um, I, I said, do you remember the old brood entrance where they'd come through a ring of fire and they'd rise up? in the middle of the stage and he was like, ah, yeah, I like it. I've, I've got just the idea. And then a week <laughs> later, here's me expecting to rise, you know, six feet in the air and he's got this giant scissor lift and I'm now 50 feet in the air. Things swaying all over the place and naturally, as Vince does, he made it even bigger and and that was so cool when he when When I got that and I knew, okay, this cannot fail now. This is so ridiculous that this is just going to work and, and people loved it then. So. Do you think that was the most over that you ever got in your career? I'd say the most over I ever got uh, was Nexus. There's no doubt about it. It was um, just a crazy period, especially for a guy like me and the rest of the Nexus guys who we literally went from being unknowns um, to being the main bad guys in professional wrestling for about six months. And the the reaction we were getting everywhere, it was, it was genuine hatred, fear, excitement that the crowd would get. And it's very hard to capture something like that. So I'd say that's the most over I had ever been. Um, but as an individual definitely bad news about it. It's, it's completely not having the the benefit of feuding with 
John Cena or the benefit of having this gang of guys with me or, or having this amazing impactful entrance where we, we ripped the, the ring apart um, yeah. for a guy who was just kind of organically getting over by just doing a promo, really. Um, that's definitely the most, most over I ever got. Well, Darren Young, Fred Rosser had recently said on his podcast that there was plans to bring Nexus back at WrestleMania this year. Was that something that you were going to be part of? So I was called about it um, probably in January. I was obviously working with NWA at that point, but my contract with NWA didn't stop me doing other things. There was no restrictions to it, but they called me about it. They made a pitch to me, which I hadn't actually spoken to anyone in WWE for the best part of four years, um, in management anyway. So this was really the first contact I had, I'd had pretty much since I'd left. Um, and they they had this idea. I didn't think it was very good. If I was going to go back and do something with WWE again, I'd expect it to be a bit more impressive than what they were offering me. So I turned it down. It wasn't it wasn't going to work for me, and um, I wished them the best of luck. I believe they were still going to do something with Darren and a couple of others. <laughs> I don't believe Ryback got the call. They didn't want they didn't want Skip Sheffield back there. He was a bit upset about that. I, I joke, but um, <laughs> so if you're you're not going to be there. Ryback's not going to be there. Yeah, what's the point? Yeah, I think so. But uh, they were going to do something. I don't know exactly what was going to play out, whether it was like access or, or something like that. But what, what was pitched to me just wasn't wasn't exciting at all. So I, I turned it down very quickly. So, so what does it need to take for you to want to step back into the ring? A million dollars, a million dollars, two million dollars. I don't know. I mean, in all honesty, to step back in the ring is, it seems... <laughs> It seems like a small commitment. It's just one match or whatever, but the work needed to get back to that one match and, and to get my, not only back, I'm, I'm in really good shape. I stay in shape, but there's a difference between being in shape where I pump by and I do some burpees and things like that and actually being in wrestling shape. And yeah. it would take me weeks, maybe even a couple of months of regularly going to a local wrestling ring, bouncing around it, working with guys and getting myself back into that. And then there's also the mental commitment of getting back into that world to that level. So I wouldn't want to just turn up and take two bumps and great Royal Rumble spot. You walk in 30 seconds, you dump out, wait for everyone and get out again. Um, I wouldn't be interested in doing that. I'd want to, if I did ever get back in the ring, I'd want to do something good. Um, and I would want to be in a, a significant position on the roster. And, um, I wouldn't want to be just the filler, which is kind of how I left wrestling. So, um, that, like I say, is a big commitment though. I'd have to be, I'd have to make sure my wrestling game was back on point. My fitness was ready. My body was all ready for it. And, um, it's not just a simple case of quick phone call. Yeah, I'll see you next week. I'll be there. It's, it's way bigger than that. As simple as it sounds to just get back in the ring. Um, it's a lot more difficult. Well, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you're 39, so 40 is on the horizon this year. It's a big milestone. Mm-hmm. Does that, you know, do you look at that and go, yeah, there's a lot of things I got to accomplish now? Not really, no. I'll be honest with you. I'm not really a numbers guy when it comes to age. I will tell you that the way I felt um, when I left WWE in early 2016 and even pictures and photographs of me from that time, I literally felt 10 or 15 years older then than I do now. So having this more relaxed lifestyle, not being beat up constantly, not having to get up every day at 4.30 to get your 6 a.m. flight, uh, not dealing with the stresses of, of what, being a WWE superstar entails, um, I'd say that I feel so much younger now. I remember seeing CM Punk um, when we did the Ultimate Beastmaster show together and hadn't seen him for a few years at that point. And the first thing I said when I saw him was, wow, you literally look 10 years younger than the last time I saw you. And um, he said, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. And it's just the toll that that lifestyle takes on you. 
um, is is incredible. And especially when you are not enjoying it and not happy is one thing going through it when you're mentally good, and, but you're physically beat up. But when you're physically beat up and mentally beat up too, it's, it's an awful thing to have to live through. And it's also an all-encompassing lifestyle where you don't get two weeks to go to Ibiza on holiday and, and go spend some time with your mates or whatever. It's no. 365, you are with us every hour of every day. You wake up, you're doing phone calls, promoting, and then you're traveling, and then you're doing this, that, and the other, and on tours, and it never ends. So um, it can be a rough lifestyle if you're not enjoying it, for sure. It's funny that you mentioned how short these nights are of sleep for you guys, because I sent you the picture of the first interview we did in 2014, uh, and you texted me back like, oh, I must have had two hours of sleep that night. Yeah, I've... I've Remember, I remember the drive over from the arena um, the night before that. And I remember looking at my watch and they were like, right, you've got to meet in the lobby at like 4.50 a.m. And I was looking <laughs> at my watch. It was already 2.30 or something like that. And I was like, wow, this is going to be a really, really rough one. And then Here, obviously, there, there it go. is. You'd never know, right? I can't no, you see look my great. eyes there. Uh, my eyes look, eyes look the pretty small, I'll be honest with you. I did have an amazing ability that after one or two hours of sleep, I could get through another day. Because you, you forget, like, I would meet you guys at, like, 6, 7, 8 a.m. I'd do all yeah. the, the media rounds and stuff like that. Then I'd get to the arena. I'd have a full day at the arena. Maybe 10 p.m. that night or or 9.30 p.m. would be my wrestling match. Then I'd cool down, shower, go to the – that was probably a Tuesday, so I'd go to the airport hotel, um, maybe sleep for three hours. I'd be up again at 4.30 to get my flight home to Tampa then at that point. So it was, yeah, it's, it, it doesn't sound too bad when you, okay, it was just two days, but no, this is my life. I, this is always like this. It never ends. Like, and uh, especially when there's no light at the end of the tunnel. You've got a great balance now though. You know, you're a leading man in films right now. You're doing commentary for NWA. Maybe there's a situation where you step into the ring and do something in your commentary role with NWA that leads to some sort of, Story yeah, of course. Know, one, here. one of the things I'm most grateful for at the moment is the balance I have in my life where I get to spend time with my girlfriend. I get to go on vacations. I get to, okay, cool. This film role has come up. I'm going to do that. Oh, this, yeah. this cool NWA thing has come up. They need me three days a month. Cool. I'll go do that. I like that variety. And I like the fact that I, if you know, things, things don't sound good, you know, I'm not going to do, I'm just going to hang out with my girlfriend and go drink wine in Paso Robles, which I did a couple of weeks ago and, and enjoy life a bit more. That's so having that, ba- it, it was great. <laughs> uh, but having that balance is, is very important to me at this point. And maybe when I was a younger man, I didn't think I needed that. But once you've had it, it's hard to kind of envision giving that up ever again. So I enjoy the variety of suddenly getting a email from an agent saying, Hey, these guys want to work with you on such and such. What do you think? And okay, cool. I wasn't planning to, but that sounds really good. And that's how I'm going to spend the next four weeks of my life is doing this thing or, or whatever it is. So, uh, yeah. With I am, uh, I am vengeance retaliations out now. You've done all your press. This is your 43rd interview. And thank you. 43rd and final. Wow. It's been so a long with four that weeks. now behind you, and now it's just time to you know have everyone watch this thing. What's next? Well, what's next is I'm going to close my windows, close the door, and make sure I don't catch this virus. Wearing a mask everywhere and all that stuff. So I don't know. I mean, in all honesty, like the rest of the entertainment world, it's almost impossible to predict right now. Wrestling wise, I'm probably not going to be doing anything in that world for a while, unless I get a phone call from NWA and they they've come up with with some plan going forward. Um, acting wise, there's nothing going on at the moment. I know there were a couple of weeks ago when we spoke, you mentioned they were starting to open up again now, but I imagine things are closing down again 
soon too with all this virus spiking up. So I don't know. I can't travel back to the UK currently. If I travel oh, back to the UK right, and yeah. see family, they, they make you go in quarantine for two weeks before you can even do anything. And so it's, it's pretty wild, but um, I'm fortunate in that I'm not stressing about paying my rent or my bills or anything like that. So I'm, I'm not in a position to complain about any of this stuff. I know there's a lot of people out there who have it worse than I do. I'm just happy that my family and friends all seem very healthy and long may that continue and, and fingers crossed they get this vaccine out soon and we can actually go back to doing what we like doing. That's the, that's the plan. That is uh-huh. the hope. But congratulations on I Am Vengeance Retaliation, which Thank you. is available everywhere on video demand, a video on demand. I paid for it like a good friend. Good man. I wish I had a link to send you. The um, the, the company who distributes it here, I've asked them for some links to send people. They didn't send me any. We, we actually had a PR company who set up about 20 of my interviews. I believe they had links. So I need to put you in touch <laughs> with them next time. Okay. Give me a shout. I'll put you in touch with the PR company. And I was I was okay paying the six ninety nine. But here's the problem: the PR company will only allow you twenty minutes for an interview, so you wouldn't Ooh. have got this full hour. You see, yeah, yeah, so we they, can't they do that. They everything. But, uh, well, when things get back to normal, now that we're living in the same city, we'll uh, have to go out and have a beer together. Yeah, maybe we'll get you involved in Vengeance Three. I'm I'm trying to pitch that Vengeance Three is done on the beach in like Malibu or something like that. That would be a amazing nice for it. And if so, we'll get you involved and uh, try and get your role in there somewhere. I maybe Maybe I'll beat you up. I don't know. Oh my God. What an honor that would be. (laughs) I will. I will. Now that I'm here and I've only been here a few days. (laughs) Now that I'm here, it's time for me to hit the ground running and start putting in the work so that when those calls come either from you or from someone else, I'm actually ready. Good, good. I mean, in all honesty, it's fun. And, and one of the worst things you can do in, in acting is overthink it and overcomplicate everything. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've got your reel together and all that stuff. There's no there's no real science to it. And a lot of it is, does the face fit when you walk in the room? The second you walk in, sometimes they've decided yes or no. And right. um, it's it, I, if I had any advice, it's don't put too much pressure on yourself, which is easier said than done because that's what I did for my entire wrestling career and I still do in acting to an extent. But the more natural you can be and more relaxed you can be, the better it tends to work out. So, By the way, for people that are just listening to this on the podcast version, they are missing out on your beautiful quarantine beard that you have. This thing's huge. <laughs> yeah, I actually trimmed it about a week ago. It was getting too wild at one point and uh, starting to tickle my lips a little and all that stuff and getting bits of food stuck in there. So it needed a little trim, but I quite like it like this now. Actually. That nice. along the, with the, the hair. hair. Not so much. I'll show you the hair. The hair is... Whoa. Wow. That yeah, Look that... That hasn't been cut since, I think, January. So um, I, I had the option of shaving it at one point. I decided not to. I think I might have missed the window now because as soon as I shave it, they'll be, oh, okay, we're opening up again. And, uh, right. So, yeah, I don't know. John Gold has a shaved head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, too scared to go into the barbers at the moment. That's the problem. Well, actually, the barbers are closing again. So yeah, can't even get, a, can't even get one if I wanted to. Well, congrats on everything. Such a pleasure to catch up with you. you. And uh, everybody should go check out I Am Vengeance Retaliation video on demand and also watch I Am Vengeance here in the US on Netflix. Yeah, cool. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's been a while. I know we've been trying to set this up for a... Probably six or seven months we've been trying to arrange this. And uh, finally, we had the everything came together, the universe conspired, and here we are. And it's perfect timing because we don't have to talk about a movie coming out. We can say the movie is out and people can go watch it right now. Thank you again. This was so great and congrats to you and everything. My pleasure. It's great having you here in LA and and hopefully we'll cross paths soon when this virus goes away and we can uh, go out for a beer and get Rye back over too. Let's make it happen. (laughs) (laughs) Good deal. 
Well, there we go. Check out the movie. Number one, because it's great. And number two, because Stu is great in it. I am Vengeance, Retaliation. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing the third and the fourth film since Stu said they've already written scripts for them. And and you heard the man here. He said he just may have a role for me in the next one. So we need to make sure that this film is popular enough, does well enough, so that there is a third film so that Stu and I can be in a film together. How cool would that be? Oh, take a screenshot. Let us know you're listening. Tag me. I'm at Chris Fanvleet. Tag Stu on Twitter. He is at Stu Bennett on Instagram. He is Stu Bennett official. And I hope you, I hope you love this one. He's such an easy guy to talk to. And it's so interesting hearing what his process is for movies, how that's so different from wrestling. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe we should make that road trip to Vegas. It's about a, it's about a four hour drive, but I'm thinking that we should make that workout video with Stu and Ryback. It'll be me working out next to two giants. So yeah, I, that'll be great to see that. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. And like I said at the top of the show, we've got a bunch of interviews on the way. Muhammad Hassan, Daniel Pewter, and Eric Young, along with a few little surprises that'll be peppered in. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. We'll see you soon. This is Brandon Kelly, the host of Blue Wire's new podcast, Golden Goal. Messi takes everybody on. Messi has got it! From Lionel Messi to Marta to Pele, our show takes a deep dive into soccer superstars. 2-0 and he's... What a World Cup for Megan Rapinoe. From Zlatan Ibrahimovic's brash confidence with the play to back it up, to Megan Rapinoe's heroic outspokenness and World Cup flair. Each episode examines a personality of the world's game. We'll dig into Maradona's Hand of God performance and subsequent downfall. The teenage trio at Dortmund that signaled the next generation of superstars. And that infamous headbutt that slung Zinedine Zidane from glory. Golden Goal. Soccer stars and the moments that made them. Premiering this summer on Blue Wire.